0: And to know that our meditation, the practice of meditation is a support for whatever wholesome intentions we have formed in our lives. That meditation is a way of coming back to some connection with ourselves some intimacy with our mind, body, and heart that points to the workings of the mind heart that are in a way the engine of our lives. The first saying of the Buddha in the collection of the sayings of the Buddha is with our minds we make the world. So to have the privilege of a space in which we can pause, let go of the usual habitual way of using the mind, and in a way turn the mind to the mind. And this is not um, a way of uh, escaping from our lives but a way of connecting and becoming more intimate (coughs) with who we are in this amazing life. So our meditation practice is quite simple to describe and yet not that easy to develop because it's not a habitual way in our culture of there the in our culture it's it's not habitual to stop to pause to look to listen and to investigate how we are in life. We are usually so caught up in the content of the mind, the content of our experience, that we forget the quite simple understanding that it's not so much the content of our experience, but our relationship to that experience that drives the quality of our lives. So meditation is a way of training the mind to remind itself over and over and over again about that relationship. That it's possible to step back and shift, shift, shift our relationship to experience. So with that in mind, we are not looking for a particular experience or anything in particular to happen. But establishing a ground on which the mind can be trained to know its experience, to know itself in relationship to its experience. So the instructions are quite simple. That first we gather all of our energy and our attention and know first the body, feel from the inside this body sitting here. Letting go of all of the external distraction, the concerns of the day, the month, the week, the year. Letting go of what what has happened before because it's forever gone. Not indulging in hopes or fears or fantasies of the future, because the future never arrives. We are always in the present moment. So we gather all of our attention and place it quite intentionally as best we can on what is happening in our experience right now. So to know the body right here, we pay attention to the posture. We know this body sitting here, the feeling of the buttocks on the seat, the feeling of the posture, allowing the posture to be dignified regal in a way. It's alert and yet at ease. So the spine is erect without being overstretched. And we are very much aware of the pressure caused by the weight of the body on the seat. Perhaps the seat is hard or soft. Perhaps we can feel the pressure. And then we pay attention to places of tightness or tension in the body, not criticizing them, not wishing them away, but knowing them. This is the beginning of our practice. Being right in the middle of how things are, without grasping at what's pleasant and without pushing away what may be unpleasant, but simply knowing. Knowing the relationship we have to the pleasant and knowing the relationship that we have to the unpleasant. So we notice how it is in the body. And if there's tightness or tension, paying attention. If there's ease or relaxation or pleasurable sensations, paying attention to those too. There may be tingling in the hands or the feet, warmth in the body, the head, What's most important is that we know how it is. And then paying attention to the moods of the mind. What have you brought with you? Perhaps something happened today that shook you or delighted you or disappointed you or made you sad. Know that too, in the same way, with some sense of equilibrium and balance. Neither rushing towards what's delightful and pleasant, nor recoiling from what is unpleasant. Just knowing. Though the heart may be sad or glad, elated or depressed, fearful, bright, dull, at ease, constricted, how is it? Just knowing. How is the energy in the body and mind? Are you tired, energetic, anticipating, skeptical? How does that affect your energy? And so with all of these questions and all of these pointing instructions you may feel the energy of the mind somewhat scattered. So once we've established how things are, body, mind and heart, we can pay attention to gathering the energy of the mind and we do that by pointing our attention to one point. And that point is usually for us the breath. And this breath can be felt either at the nostrils where the air enters and leaves or at the belly that rises and falls or the chest that rises and falls with each in-breath and each out-breath. Find a place in your body where the breath is easily felt so that there is no efforting that's necessary. And allow the attention to rest on the breath, on this movement. And the way to not be superficial in our attention is to actually know the sensations that come and go with each breath, with each in-breath and each out-breath. So if you're paying attention at the nostrils, How is it when the air comes into the nostrils, first brushing against the upper lip, entering the nostrils, is it cool or warm, and what's the sensation of the brushing? And as it leaves the nostrils, how is that? Is it warmer than it was when it entered the body? And of course, sounds come and go. And there's no need to try to push them away or try to make something happen, but incorporate whatever happens in our practice, in our period of practice. Because our practice is actually a practice of awareness, of knowing right now in this present moment exactly how things are. So pay attention to this movement of breath and let whatever else happens, whether it's sound or sensation or thought, let it stay in the background, coming and going. But if one of those experiences actually grabs your attention, it's not a problem. Simply know it as it is, thinking, hearing, or if it's sensation, throbbing or stabbing or pressure or heat or cold, whatever it is, notice that it's grabbed the attention And when it's no longer strongly calling the attention, let it go and come back to the breath. Not a mistake or a problem if the mind is racing or thinking or distracted from the breath. It's what the mind does. What's important is that in our practice we notice where the mind is. Whether it's lost in the past or falling forward into the future, we notice that and we bring it back to this moment, to the experience in body, mind and heart of this moment. And the breath is an admirable way of coming back, coming here, now allowing the breath to anchor our attention. I'm going to take a risk tonight.
1: I'm
0: gonna talk about my personal practice, which I don't usually do in public. But I'm living in an extraordinary, moment of my life, and as I was, can everybody hear me, as I was um, contemplating what to speak about tonight, nothing felt authentic in terms of teaching other than my own uh, realization. And I use that word quite, quite ordinarily. So I'm not speaking about realization with a capital R to make it something important, but really realization with a small r Because I actually just want to speak to you from my seat, from my seat, which even though it's raised, and we raise the seat because um, in our in our Theravada tradition, where the the teacher is the teacher's seat is always raised, uh, not to so much um, elevate the teacher as an ego but really to um, symbolize the transcendent nature of the teachings. So I'm speaking to you from my seat, my seat, and hopefully that's um, the ground of that seat is, is the teachings. I've been, in a moment of my life, I'm in my late 60s, and my husband is in his early 70s. And about uh, four months ago, we got some very difficult news about his health. And uh, so the... um, So my life has has really shifted in quite an extraordinary way where I was spending a lot of time um, teaching and um, hopefully helping other people. Um, I've had to shift from that to really being um, a full-time helper to my husband and it's been extraordinary in so many ways very difficult very very difficult because in a way it's it's uh, I have a a self-image when we all know about self-images right you know and how useful they are (laughs) I have a self-image of um, competence and I'm in charge and um, and I know what I'm doing right and of course to be put into a new uh, stage of life or a new situation usually means that we haven't got the faintest idea what we're doing And so our self-images get really kind of messed up, right? And so um, a friend of mine, when I told her what was happening, another Dharma teacher, as a matter of fact, uh, wrote to me and said, do you have the support you need? And it kind of, it put me in a really state of confusion which was surprising to me. And I wrote back and I said, I have this incredible self-image of being competent and able to cope and able to know what to do and how to do it. And I said, when you wrote this question of whether um, I had enough support, my mind, it was, it was almost like a koan. My mind got com- completely confused because what she was asking is, do you know what help to ask for? And I wrote her back and I said, you know, the self image of competence means that I haven't got the faintest idea what help to ask for. And as a matter of fact, in a way, it feels um, uh, infra dig to ask for help. And it started a journey of um, real inquiry for me into this whole understanding of the self-images that we create and, uh, and how that really relates to the practice that we do. Because on the one hand, the practice has a transcendent quality that naturally arises. um, You know, it it arises at different stages for different people. But there is a transcendent quality, and I I don't want to make a, a whole other world out of it, but there is a transcendent quality that arises or arrives in one's being if you spend enough time really looking at the mind and the heart. and yet at the same time there is also a quality that for those of you who've been studying for a while know is called sankharas, you know the, the kind of um, human ways in which we have adjusted to life through all of the exigencies and uh, vicissitudes that have arrived in our lives, we as human beings are remarkably able to adjust and to, um, to adapt and to bring ways of surviving and coping to what can be really difficult situations. And what I've noticed in my uh, in these last few months, in which there's a um, a thin veil, a very thin veil that exists between life and death, between these this transcendence. And these sankharas, this kind of transcendent way of being and at the same time, what we know is our very deep humanity. And so I've been in the midst of practicing on a really practical level of being as present as I can be right now right here with appropriate response which is in a way the entire essence of the practice that we teach here. Not a kind of falling into the future about what may or may not happen but really being so incredibly present that it's possible to be of the maximum amount of help and support. Being so present that any response to whatever is happening is as appropriate as uh, we're capable of. So living at the very uh, edge of this veil this tissue of life and death, of transcendence and humanity, or sankaras, is a really interesting place to hang out. Really interesting place to hang out. And what I've what I've been studying, what's become, um, in a way, the most beautiful. Uh, text of assistance in this place, this place of the veil, is a is a, a teaching of the Buddha that comes from the Mahayana tradition. And for those of you who are not familiar, there are several traditions in the Buddhist um, lineage, and they all start with the Buddha, but they they're you know, for historical reasons that I won't go into, um, they've split off into three main, um, and there are others, but three main uh, traditions. And it's called the Theravada, which we pra- I teach and practice in, and um, which comes from Southeast Asia, and the Mahayana, which essentially encompasses Zen and the Tibetan tradition, and the Vajrayana, which is the kind of um, a, 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 an aspect of the Tibetan so this text that I've been studying is a pretty famous text called the Diamond Sutra that uh, is mostly a Zen uh, it's a, it's a Zen text but it speaks to this place this place this edge this veil thin veil. And it's a teaching in which the Buddha is speaking to a student called Subhuti and is essentially teaching Subhuti about the nature of this conditioned existence, which is what we're all in. We're all in an existence that is conditioned. It's not unconditioned. We are bound by so many Um, experiences and uh, ways that we've been taught by ourselves as well as by our teachers, our parents, our, our environment, our culture, our language, all kinds of ways in which we've been conditioned to respond or react in particular ways. And in this sutra, the Buddha is talking to Subhuti about that conditioned existence and teaching him how to work with the teachings that the Buddha is offering. And there are 32 chapters to this sutra, but I'm gonna read two to you because these are the two that have become a kind of um, constant teaching for me in this uh, place of the edge of the veil. So the first one is chapter seven, in which the Buddha is teaching sabutti about enlightenment or awakening. And for those of you who've been here a while, you know that the the aim of the teachings is not so much that we sit quietly and watch our breaths but that it's a training that essentially stills the mind and heart in such a way that we begin to see clearly with some wisdom we begin to understand the very nature of uh, of our own existence and from that place the mind awakens, there is a place of illumination, of luminosity, of awakening, of enlightenment, where we understand deeply the nature of this life. And I could, I could give you the, um, the kind of step-by-step teachings, but that's not my aim tonight and many of you have had them, so you know what I'm talking about, that we can talk about the nature of existence and the nature of um, phenomena and reality and our relationship to it and the impermanence of all things and the selfless or insubstantial nature of things. And most of all, the, the suffering that we endure as human beings. But the Buddha talks about this to Subuti in a way that, I, that has been really helpful to me, and I wanted to share it with you. So the Buddha asked Subhuti, What do you think, Subhuti? Has the Buddha arrived at the highest, most fulfilled, most awakened and enlightened mind? Does the Buddha teach any teaching? <coughs> Don't let that throw you. Subhuti replied, As far as I have understood the Lord Buddha's teachings, there is no independently existing object of mind called the highest, most fulfilled, awakened or enlightened mind. So he's saying, we can talk about enlightenment and we can talk about awakening and we can talk about what it means to be actually present for life, in an enlightened way, but it's not a thing, it's not a place, it's not anything that is really describable, it's ineffable. Nor is there any independently existing teaching that the Buddha teaches. It's a little difficult for us as teachers, right? puts us into a real twist. Like, what am I doing here? What am I saying to you? I don't even know. (laughs) Why? He says, because the teachings that the Buddha has realized and spoken of cannot be conceived of as separate, independent things and therefore cannot be described, which I just, The truth in them is uncontainable and inexpressible. It neither is nor is it not. What does this mean? What this means is that Buddhas and disciples are not enlightened by a set method of teachings, but by an internally, and pay attention to this, but by an internally intuitive process, which is spontaneous, and is part of their own inner nature. Buddhas and disciples are not enlightened by a set method of teachings, I'm saying it again, but by an internally intuitive process, which is spontaneous, and is part of their own inner nature. He throws us back on the luminosity within, on who we truly are. We are always, always at this edge of the veil. We have never been immortal, from the moment we take that first breath in this life, inspiring, taking in the spirit, we are at that edge. We are at that edge. And what do we have to rely on? This method, this set method of teachings, is, doesn't, is not about the words or the rules or the principles. They are the ground that point us back to our own intuitive process. We know what's right. We know the nature of life. We don't need anybody to tell us about our suffering. We know all about it because we know it from the inside out. And we also know it from the outside in because we've always been able to see not only our own suffering, but the suffering of every being with whom we come into contact because we're not separate. My suffering is not different than yours, nor is your suffering different from mine. And my freedom is not different from yours, nor is your freedom different from mine. We are all at the edge of the veil. So we're thrown back onto this internally intuitive process, which is spontaneous and part of our own inner nature. That could either be really scary, or it could be completely freeing. Which is it for you? How will you take that? Will you take it as understanding your responsibility for appropriate response? Or will you take, oh, I can't deal with that, I gotta go have a drink, right? Or however we do that thing of spacing out. We are always at the edge. So we're in this heart, coming, so that's the transcendence, and then there is the place of humanity, the place of what we call sankaras, where we actually come back from that place of luminosity and we attach. We attach to what we want, what we think we want, what we think we should have. We attach to the craving of, this is how it should be, this is is how everybody should be with me, this is how my life should be, this is what I should get, this is what I need, this is what I want. And we miss it. We miss the beauty of what is actually true in this moment. And we miss the uh, possibility of letting go of any idea of control. And I mean idea of control because we have no control. And we miss the possibility of letting go of the idea of control. And we form our sankharas around wanting to control. We want it this way. We want it. We don't want it that way. If it comes, if it, if we get what we don't want, somebody is to blame, right? Either us or somebody else. We have no idea about. We have no perspective on how it comes to this moment. The conditioned nature of experience that. Things don't happen independently, but they're dependent upon all of the conditions and causes that have been established and have been, in effect, in force. And it's constantly moving and changing. The ground on which we're standing is not solid. It's moving, it's shifting, it's changing. We are moving and shifting and changing all the time. And there is no time. And yet within this space and time as we see it when we come back to this sankara filled body, we think there is past we think there is future, and we even think there is present, because we have to talk about it. And when we talk about it, we use words, and those words bind our existence, and we think that they actually have meaning, but they have no meaning. They're just our way of attempting to make some sense out of this experience, which in many ways, as the Buddha says, is ineffable. And of course it's lawful, and yet unpredictable, uncontainable, inexpressible. So of course, I didn't bring the most important one, chapter, I just, I I, I didn't, but I think I remember it, because I've been really studying it. So the last chapter, which is chapter 32, in which the Buddha tells Subhuti about this conditioned existence. And he says, he tells him that this conditioned existence, he says, thus shall ye think of this conditioned existence as a drop of dew, a bubble in a stream flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a phantom, an illusion, and a dream. This is the nature of your conditioned existence. What on earth is he talking about? He's talking about the slipperiness of this existence that we grasp onto. And he tells him, don't be fooled by appearances and don't grasp at them. And think that there's something that we're able to grasp, that we're able to hold onto, that we think of as solid, substantial, or real. But really look Look to see what is the nature of this experience, what is the nature of this existence without the grasping, without believing the appearances. What happens if we put our hand through the appearance and we find no substance there? drop of dew, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a phantom, an illusion, and a dream. Is this scary or is it beautiful? And it throws us back to understanding uh, in, from a Theravadan text called the Anguttara Nikaya, which it says the night, the days and nights are relentlessly passing. How am I spending my time? So, are we, are we um, taken up in our time with the illusion? of solidity and substantiality or are we really understanding appropriate response in this very moment? Because that's all there is. There is nothing else. What is the appropriate response now? Now. 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 Or are we holding on to what's already passed and is stale, it's gone, it's no longer viable? Or wishing that something else is going to happen in the future that's never going to arrive? Because have you noticed that no matter what your fantasy is of the future, that first of all, it never does arrive. Future's never here. And even if you were to (coughs) kind of distort your perception and think that it is here, have you noticed that it's nothing like what you thought it was gonna be? Or wished it was gonna be? Or even if it was, for a moment it changed? Sometimes in delightful ways, sometimes in not such delightful ways. So the days and nights are relentlessly passing. How am I spending my time? (coughs) So what I've discovered is that I can sit at this edge of the veil. That I don't need to move away from it. That it doesn't need to be any different than it is. and that the that reality has this aspect of luminosity and also this aspect of difficulty and how can they be brought together as one other than by the deep but a profound and clear understanding of insubstantiality. And it's not scary. It's absolutely beautiful. And it throws us back onto kindness for each other, for ourselves, starting with ourselves. And then Allowing who we are to become this large being that holds all beings in this large body, heart and mind. Keeping intimacy with our humanity so that our practice is not wasted. It's not about getting what we want, but really how we are with what we do get. Whatever it is, and it's not a mistake what comes, because this conditioned existence is like that dewdrop, it's a dewdrop world sliding away, sliding away, sliding away, sliding away and no amount of grasping can make it stop and no amount of controlling is going to make it different. What we can do is open this courageous heart to what is, noticing the wish for it to be different, or for what we love to stay, or to not have what we don't want. Instead, we open this heart this really large heart so that its response is completely appropriate. And what is appropriate now shifts and changes as the world moves along, as this great flowing river of life that we are, that's all that's happening is this great flowing river of life flows and flows. And we flow with it. We, we, we flow on this beautiful, luminous, thin veil of purity and grace. And we can do it with graciousness. And this practice that we do is preparing us for that. That's what we are being prepared for, is that realization. And I say it with a small r. So there's a passage from Suzuki Roshi that I'll close with. Suzuki Roshi was a Zen monk from Japan who brought Zen into the popular culture in the middle of the last century. He says, you don't really know what it means to sit in meditation until there is some great difficulty in your life. Not until something happens like the grave illness of someone you love. And then you are tearing your hair out and pacing back and forth in the corridor of the hospital And there's nothing you can do. And finally, you take a seat in the midst of your fears and your sorrows and thoughts and worries. And you just sit in the middle of it all. And that's the moment that you begin to understand the power of your practice. of dew, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a phantom, an illusion, and a dream. Thank you. So if you have questions or comments, I'd be really happy to hear them. Let's just sit for a couple of minutes. I hope I didn't bum you out. my ghetto tissue. How about if you talk to each other, why don't you just turn to um, a person next to you and I'll just give you a couple of minutes to just talk about what you noticed for yourself during that talk and what you wonder about. I'll just, and I'll ring the bell in about five minutes. So one of you speak first, I'll ring the bell in three minutes and the other person speak afterwards so you're not speaking altogether. Um, And it's not formal, it's just, just speak to each other because I suspect you're a little, shy to speak in public. To talk to me, just just said you didn't want to. You didn't want to talk to me. You wanted to talk to each other. That's okay. Good. I'm glad you could talk to each other. So, anything you'd like to share?
1: Um, Earlier in your talk, you talked a little bit about um, appropriate response, mm. and. It's so interesting because I'll be concrete. Um, I have a brother who has been going through mental illness for the past year and a half, couple of years. And initially in that process, like noticing myself just wanting to be as supportive as possible. And, you know, this wanting to control, like that's something I can't control, but. Wanting him to be better, um, mm-hmm. the wanting didn't really help. <laughs> and you know, he's gotten sort of more stable over time. And and I just when I when I hang out with him, when I'm with in his presence, it's sometimes it's confusing what the appropriate response is. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, and I try to just to hold our time together in this heart space of kindness and compassion and then sometimes when he is sharing information with me it feels like the appropriate response is to just be compassionate and to listen and to and just do that and then sometimes it feels like the appropriate response is to like give him a kick in the ass sometimes because you know he's kind of like gets into this self-pity mode and and it's just like not this, sometimes it's confusing to know what's appropriate. Um, and, then, and, then, and then there's this other level of like feeling, not being okay with that confusion. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just want to know how you sort of navigate that terrain.
0: Buddha and disciples are not enlightened by a set method of teachings, but by an internally intuitive process which is spontaneous and is part of their own inner nature.
1: That smile was the best teaching all night.
0: (laughs) Isn't that a relief? No. So, you know, so you were talking about um, wanting things to be a certain way and how that gets embedded, you know, that craving gets embedded in everything. So even when you're trying to be helpful, you're second guessing yourself about whether you're helpful, you know, whether you could have done better, right? So right in that moment, there's an intuitive process that has a response. And if you are present, and I know you know how to do that, the, the response is appropriate, right? So, how, it, we're, you know, we're, we're seeking for some kind of perfection that doesn't exist, and yet it does. But it's not, the, the perfection doesn't exist where we're looking for it, it just exists. So whatever your response is, if you're present right now, it's appropriate. If there's kindness and compassion, as you said, and presence, we can't foretell how that response will open up in the future. But the future doesn't exist, so it's okay. You, so how how are you now? How are you now? How are you here? What's the quality of your mind, and what's the quality of your heart? Uh, something like that, right? See, now you're going back to being quiet again. I thought we were all over that.
2: (laughs) Hi, I'm I'm Sunu, and I just wanted to say thank you for trusting this group with your personal experiences. I think it's very courageous to be vulnerable as a leader, and I think it's the most inspiring thing you can do. Um, I was talking with my partner over here for the exercise about my daughter, who's four and wants to do everything by herself. And then she says, I'm brave, I'm strong, I did it by myself. And then when she can't, she gets frustrated and she has a tantrum. And I think we do that as adults. And Mm -hmm. I think our job is to tell each other that I can help you and you still count as brave and strong. And so I just wanted to say thank you.
0: Thank you. What did you say your name was? Sunu. Sunu, thank you. Did you have something? (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I also want to say thank you, Gina, for sharing with us tonight. Um, and I think what I wanted, what I'm hearing
2: um, is that if you stay present and your intentions are coming from an open heart, and um,
0: you're looking at the situation with compassion. Um, not clinging not grasping then the response that you make in that moment is the right one for you that's kind of what i'm that's what i'm hearing and that's that's what i'm going (laughs) to take great that's a wonderful thing to take great okay so we have time for just one more and then we'll have to stop
2: Hi, I'm Chanel. Um, I don't think I've ever spoken during these Q&As after the talk. Um, When I first uh, started practicing and I came uh, to New York Insight, I participated in an exercise that you led, Gina, uh, where we had to Um, look at our partner uh, without blinking and for a long period of time and you walked us through uh, the connecting of that um, and the experience of melding the two people within that exercise together and uh, my partner was John Hmm. And since then, when John and I see each other, um, there's a connection and a very um, distinct warmth that I feel with John. And and I'm shaking now because I think what I'm experiencing right now is the open heart that I experienced with John during that exercise. And that it's a difficult thing to talk about because a spiritual experience is a difficult thing to talk about because you don't want it to be judged. And the first person that judges it can be yourself. And so to share it makes you very vulnerable. But I needed to share it, because it's true. Mm. Um, And so I'm really uh, glad to be here. Uh, And I thank you for having this group um, that I've been able to be a part of. Uh, So thanks. Mm. Thank you.
0: Okay. So we've reached the end of the evening, and if any of what I said did not resonate or confused you or just didn't land, it's okay. What's really useful is a kind heart and a clear mind. That's all. And if we come to life with this kind heart, or kind mind and clear heart, that's another way of putting it. then our response will be appropriate, and is appropriate. So we take all of the merit of having practiced together, having shared together, and we cast it out as a wide net covering the whole world. And we bear in mind those who are hungry, and we wish for their feeding. Those who are homeless, we wish for their being housed. Those who are grieving, to be comforted. Those who are lonely, to be befriended. And we share the merit of the practice we've done together and the reflections we've done together tonight with the whole world, wishing for the awakening, the well-being, and the happiness, the freedom from suffering, and the freedom of all beings everywhere. And we wish for peace in this world. wishing that all beings be safe from harm, all beings be happy and peaceful, all beings be healthy and strong, and live with complete ease, free, may it be so. Thank you so much for coming tonight.
1: Thank you for listening. To learn
0: how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.